Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. This episode of People Business is a little bit different than what we've done in the past. This conversation was held as part of the education curriculum for Chicago SHRM, the Chicago chapter of the Society for Human Resource Management. In this conversation, I had the opportunity to interview Lindsay Verstegen, Chief People Officer at ShopRunner, and Sam Yagen, the former CEO of ShopRunner, talking about how they came together on the leadership team when Sam took over the business in the mid-2010s and how they grew that business and scaled that business to three times what it was, eventually selling to FedEx in 2020. There's a lot of great stuff in here that we explore about the relationship between the heads of HR and CEOs, as well as other executives, what makes a good team, what makes a good chief people officer CEO relationship and how they work through some of their more challenging times. I had a lot of fun doing this. It's a 60 minute interview and then we got Q&A from the crowd. So it's a little bit of a longer episode, but I think there's a lot of insightful stuff in here for all of you. I hope you enjoy it. Here is Lindsay and Sam. I'm excited to be asked to do this. This is fun. I love these conversations and uh, it's going to be fun to dive in with Lindsay and Sam. We'll just start at the beginning. Would Sam, I'll direct this one to you. Would you just give us a lay of the land? What is ShopRunner and kind of what was it when you started? When ShopRunner was founded, it was founded on a simple but I think brilliant insight, which is back in 2010, that Amazon Prime was really going to be a game changer in e-commerce. And in particular, that really virtually no company on their own could create their own competitor to Amazon Prime. Walmart, Target, some of the grocery stores ended up, I think, being able to do something powerful. But for your sort of run-of-the-mill department store, specialty retailer, they weren't going to be able to compete with Prime on their own simply because they didn't have enough purchase frequency. You just don't shop enough at Kate Spade to have Kate Spade Prime. And so the idea at its core was let's uh, let's bring together a network of retailers and in aggregate create a powerful enough network that a consumer would want to have unlimited free two-day shipping free returns at that hundred or more retailers. And that was really the business that I found when I took over in 2016 and, and brought Lindsay on uh, soon thereafter. And the insight we had uh, at the time was this idea of a coalition of retailers, a network of retailers, could actually be much more powerful than just the prime component of Amazon. There's Amazon has uh, checkout, which is a powerful feature. They have 
uh, same day delivery, which is a powerful feature. And they have their marketplace platform, which is a powerful feature. Each one of those pillars of Amazon's success cannot be replicated by your, again, run-of-the-mill department store or specialty retailer. And so what Lindsay and I built over the last five years was basically a platform that allows retailers and brands to aggregate their scale for the benefit of each individual member of the network to provide a, a networked competitor to prime checkout marketplace and same day delivery. Thank you. And and what was the kind of scale that we're talking about over that five year period? What what was it when you started and and where was it when you left? Yeah, I mean, if you look at headcount, you know, I think it, we went from something like sixty to I think at our peak something like two hundred and twenty. So that's one way to look at it. If you look at revenue, we we roughly three x our revenue prior to our sale to FedEx. But I think even more more importantly than just you know dollars or or heads was really just the the surface area of our of our business. Again, we were simply a membership program really when we took over, and we really expanded that vision to include payments, marketplace, and logistics as well. So we really became a full fledged uh, Amazon competitor versus just being a an Amazon Prime competitor. We're going to get into the two of you and, and your origin story here in a second, but just one more question for you, Sam. What is it like to take over as a CEO of a new organization? What are the conversations like as you're getting into it to kind of set the vision? And, and what is your mindset going into it about you know where you get started, how you do an evaluation of the needs of the business? Like where, Where's your head as you get into a new business? I, I think the hardest thing is... Um or the most important thing is to really um, bring a curiosity and an open-mindedness to the environment, to the organization, and to really want to learn and absorb as much as possible from the people who are there and build trust with that existing group. Shopburner was an interesting situation because one of the things that drew me to Shopburner in the first place was I had had really two types of experiences prior to Shopburner. I had very, I was a founder of multiple companies. And what I found was that culturally, Startups tend to be very founder-driven. The, the culture is of the founder it, for two reasons. One, you're in survival mode, and so you don't often have time to invest in the you know a, a more intentional or affirmative culture. Um, and two, it's actually probably a strength. You're you are attracting people into this cause, into this vision, which is often in in the founder's brain. But then I also had the experience of taking over Match.com, the, the leading dating business, which was a you know thousand-person organization. And what I realized there was that there was very little impact I could have on the culture quickly because it was a thousand-person company. And the way of working had been so ingrained in the business over 20 years that turning the battleship was just going to take a long time. And so what I looked for, what I loved about the opportunity here was Sharpener was a business that was at scale. It was north of $10 million of revenue, but it was still small enough where I thought if I had the right partner leading the, the people organization, that we could really mold this in an affirmative, intentional way that could blaze a trail for other companies that say, oh, it's too hard to prioritize culture. It's too hard to do the things that we want to do. I, I think I wanted, I wanted a partner in the, in the chief people officer seat that could really help me. You know, If I thought of the culture as like a a ball of clay on the wheel that we could really just mold it into something that we wanted it to be. Which is a, a great segue. So Lindsay, how do you then come into the picture? Um, I came into the picture when Sam couldn't even tell me what the name of the company was. And so that was very mysterious, but naturally because no one knew he was going to be taking over at that point. 
we met and it's the conversation had to stay at a very high level. I think he had heard of my reputation as someone who'd been on a couple of rocket ships previously in Chicago. So I was at Groupon from like 70, 80 employees to 12,000, two and a half years later. And then Braintree and Venmo from about 70 employees to over 800. And then as part of PayPal, which was the inevitable outcome there um, or the ultimate outcome. So I think he sat down and sort of talked to me about just philosophically how he was thinking about it. Obviously, it spoke to me. But at that point, I was at a personal um, inflection point, having just had my first baby, Vince, who's uh, just turned five. So I had a very candid conversation. And honestly, that's where our trust started. I mean, I think I was, I think any uh, person who's given birth can attest that that period right after is really intense. And so um, I had nothing to lose in being really honest with him about what I wanted my job to be and what I didn't want my job to be because I was at I was in survival mode at that point. And honestly, I had a great gig at PayPal and Braintree and Venmo. I was really proud of what I built there. Certainly, there was a lot of opportunity for upward mobility at PayPal. But ultimately, what got me really excited was a CEO that really cared about equitable workplaces and talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion right away. So I know that that I, I, I aspire to a day when all of us as HR leaders consider that table stakes for a CEO to be a great leader. But unfortunately, that's not the reality we live in. In 2016, when he's talking to me six months before I inevitably, before I eventually go join him, the fact that that was even in our first conversation, again, I hope that is not remarkable in future. I hope Sam is one of many people that approach it this way, but it was a remarkable thing in my book because both at Groupon and at Braintree, I'd done some work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and frankly felt like the conversation got sort of serious way too late. And so as I was reflecting on what are the lessons I can take to the next place, similar to Sam describing a battleship and sort of the incrementality of change in a large organization, I was frustrated by that as well inside the PayPal organization where certainly the wins look different. There just have to be. You make little changes to a process that is across tens of thousands of thousands of employees, it has potentially bigger impact globally. But in terms of how you experience it as a people leader, it's just different. It's harder to feel that. So the idea that we could take an organization that was 70 people and really think about it from day one was just interesting because I'd always thought, hypothetically, if you could get buy-in sooner, it would just permeate the whole culture. It would just permeate every hire. Everyone would know that this is an expectation because I believe that that work in DEI is not just a side project. It's a lens you put on every part of the employee experience. And so to have a CEO who was talking about that from day one was the reason why eventually, six months later, and a lot of soul searching, I said, I think I have to go do this. Even though uh, I certainly was leaving a much more stable gig, um, I felt like it was a once-in-a-lifetime shot to be able to build something I was really proud of. So I want to put a pin in the DEI conversation because I want to come back to that. But I, I think there was something in there that you said where, you know, I just had nothing to lose. And so I was really honest about what I wanted and, and what I needed in my next position. And I think a lot of people, when they get into a new position, especially if they're interviewing with a CEO or some other executive, you know, might feel a little bit intimidated without divulging anything you're uncomfortable with divulging. What were those conversations like? And and what, if anything, did you learn from the honesty of those conversations about how to create and kick off a good relationship? Yeah. So I think for me, number one was an assertion that 
um, in order to do my job well, and I'm sure many HR leaders on this call can relate, I have to have some boundaries because the work is emotional. The work does require my, my soul in it. And so, especially as I'm navigating motherhood in those early innings, you know, I'm thinking two, two ways I'm thinking. Number one is, of course, I have to advocate for what I need because if I don't, I'm not effective at my job. And the ex, you know, we all know expectation is the root of all heartache. I'm looking not to break anyone's heart. I'm looking to set the appropriate expectation, be really clear about my needs. And if it's not in the cards, ultimately, we're going to find that out one way or the other. So to cut to the chase helped. It also helped to just know, you know, Sam um, is experienced at this, cared about team development, was not, I think that's probably a lesson learned over many other companies, I'm going to guess, but I don't, we've never gotten really into that. I think just the fact that he said, I want a chief people officer on my executive team was a testament to his experience with this. Just like, hey, I know it's an important and um, worthy seat to have at this table. And then I think just like on a very tactical level, every time I would think about how I would advocate inside the workplace and I wish, I don't know, I think this is just like the most helpful filter. I think to myself, what's the example I'm setting that women 10 years from now are going to look at and be proud of that I've like helped move the needle past some of the invisible labor past some of the non-acknowledgement of the total workload. And so in those moments when I'm feeling like I'm doubting myself, whether those needs are worthy, whether anything that I'm articulating as a fear is not valid, I think to myself, I put another woman in this place and I'm glad for having had this conversation now because then when Sam talks about a parental leave policy, which by the way, we did launch out and you know we were able to get a write-up in the Philadelphia uh, newspaper on it because a company of our size doesn't typically endeavor to change something like that. It created a faster path to like, let's just be very clear. We're here to meet human needs. We're here to employ human beings to have whole lives. And part of that is creating the space for their whole life. And so the conversation also, it helps that Sam has kids. Uh, um, I, I hope that in the future, that's not a prerequisite, again, on that empathy, but it certainly helps that he's going home and is a, a good partner to his to his wife as well and, and considers gender parity just, again, table stakes. So those things really matter at the end of the day. And honestly, they're a sniff test for me about whether I want to partner with that CEO. And, and the, message, the message I wanted to send you know, early on as we were getting to know each other was I think too often the relationship can be HR as a cost center. Uh, HR kind of you know, comes to the CEO or I think worse when it's to the CFO, but whatever comes with this laundry list of you know initiatives that they want, and then the CEO says no. And I, and I really wanted to flip that. I wanted to say what I'm looking for more is um, someone who can actually, you know, help. Let's create a joint vision for what we're going to build together, and then you're actually the tip of the spear. You're actually the one who's going to go because you're the expert. You're the one who can make it real. So I want I wanted I wanted Lindsay to know that we were going to be aligned on the vision, and then she was I was going to be supporting her to go make it all happen, rather than kind of her having to come beg for support and kind of pull me along. So that was what I was trying to communicate in the early days. And what was going through your head as she was setting some of those boundaries? Because I think I think it's good to hear what you're hearing as she's setting boundaries, because people are afraid that when they set boundaries, that it comes off like they're not engaged or they're not willing to do the work. But I've read a number of articles that say that, no, it actually helps build some esteem and and connection. So what's going through your head as she's giving you the honest truth about what she needs? You know, I I think 
and and different of course every you know relationship is 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 bespoke and idiosyncratic and every ceo will want different things i, I am someone who um very much wants people who are going to be assertive people who are going to be clear people who are going to be you know transparent on what they need to be successful you know whether it was boundaries or whether it was you know as we started to as our conversations deepened it was okay well what does you know what does what are some of these ideas we're talking about esoterically what do they look like in practice we started to you know exchange actual ideas of of what this would start to look like and so especially because i wanted a thought partner i wanted someone who was again going to be even further along on the journey than than i was it was important to me that she was assertive and that she was you know sort of showing the ability to not just be overly deferential i think one of the challenges i personally have in my career has been you know people can be intimidated by me people can be deferential to me they look at my resume they're like oh you know sam must Lizzie didn't even know who I was. She told me she she's like I had to look you up the first time. She's like you weren't that impressive. So, I, <laughs> which I loved, which I loved. Um, and so I wanted someone who was going to really sort of you know rumble and and sort of be a true partner. So let's shift into what that work actually looks like. How do each of you define people strategy? What what does that term mean to you? Okay, so to me, um, the people strategy goes hand in hand with, in our case, product strategy. So, you know, what we create is software or, you know, various products inside of a portfolio for retailers. And so the people strategy coincides with that. So for every product strategy, there should be a people strategy that accompanies that, meaning how are we going to get the work done, ensure that we can continue to ship and reiterate and, you know, sort of follow that agile uh, process. So the people strategy for us at the beginning was simply taking stock of things as they were, kind of getting a state of the union. I know Sam, when I walked in, it was really helpful because he and the COO had sat down with literally everyone inside that company and asked the same six or seven questions it was. So before I started, it was like I could read through and even before knowing anyone, kind of get a sense of like, what's the pulse? There wasn't a pulse survey at that point. That was part of the people strategy. That's seven questions. And also just for employees to know, whatever Sam's going to come in, it will be true co-creation with you who have been a huge part of getting this company to this moment. And so just the fact that he set that tone even before I joined to say, listen, employees, this is going to be top, down, bottoms up, side to side. We're going to create this all together. And so the people's strategy became, for me, of course, setting up a hiring plan, doing a talent calibration on who people were to begin with, sort of how was the org functioning, was the design correct? But really, the most simple terms is to think about the three facets of my role, which are an in-person experience or the place where you see the culture, you walk in and you feel that energy in the office, hopefully. I think when we walked in, I didn't necessarily feel that, though I was an outsider, so I don't claim to be objective. You know, it's like it's different when you walk in and you're the new CHRO. Um, The second piece is what I call employee experience. So that's everything from onboarding to offboarding. And then, of course, talent acquisition. So the people strategy, you know, we lean in on different parts depending on what we're hearing. But the other important part of that strategy was not only that Sam sat down and got that initial pulse check, but that we set up a pulse practice. Every quarter, we were going to hear from our employees. We were going to come up. And Sam and I collaborated on that question set and had arguments about... Sam loves a four-point scale. I hate a four-point scale. I want five. I want to be able to pick a middle. And to date, we do not agree on this. And it just became a thing of like, okay, I concede to you. Like, if, if where you get value, I, I, I conceded to you. In, okay, fine. You for the, re- for the record, for the record, for the record. 
My yes, okay, fine. You you conceded to me, but that was a journey we went on. Like those are the sorts of debates on like how are we going to measure our own success? And it started with just like creating the practice, the people practice. Because when I walked in, or when we walked in, it was a PEO doing the benefits and payroll. There was an employee relations person and a single office manager. But beyond that, there really wasn't a dedicated recruiter. There was outsourced RPO recruiting happening. And so from a brand and employee uh, culture perspective, we weren't doing a lot to help by outsourcing everything. Um, And so, you know, you make one decision because you need to outsource it again from a cost perspective. But what do you lose in terms of the things you can learn as you actually build it from inside the house? And so similarly, we did take benefits in-house really with an eye on inclusion as well, because we could have far more agency to create very inclusive benefits and really craft the right package we needed from a cost perspective, but also ensuring that it was sending the right signal to employees on what was and wasn't in coverage. You know, we also sided with an employer or an insurer that we felt was really good for mental health because early on we discussed it was just a really important part of the whole well, the whole employee value was really talking about mental health. And again, that started with bringing everything in-house and starting to make it our own. So I don't know if you've described the people strategy as different, Sam, or how you think about it. It certainly varies, you know, industry to industry. I think there's a moment of, I don't know, vulnerability or clarity when you realize that every morning, the primary value of your business decides whether they're going to come to work that day. You know, like we do a quarterly pulse survey, but like every day our team votes with their feet or with their Zoom login or whatever, their Slack login now, like they could leave their job. You know, everyone who works at Sharpener could get another job tomorrow, right? And so, you know, when I think about people strategy, it's, you know, how do we go find the people? How do we create an environment that attracts people who will be accretive to the people strategy itself and make it sort of self-fulfilling. And that's when I think it really, when something magical happens, when you have such a clear culture and, a, and people strategy that it only attracts people who are of that type. Now, of course, it, it continues to evolve. And, and, it, and, and so it doesn't have to be, you know, it's not that we don't we aren't inclusive of, of new new ideas and new and new perspectives, but that it it becomes the bigger it gets, the stronger it gets, and and the new people who 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 come make it stronger, bring their networks in, and all of a sudden, you know, you don't worry every morning that are these two hundred and six people or whatever going to show up for work. So that to me is the most important thing. You know, I think we we really punched above our weight in terms of um, you know we were a relatively small company that didn't have a big you know, sort of employer brands here in Chicago. In fact, we had no office in Chicago. And within, I don't know, a year, 18 months, Lindsay, we were on the best places to work. And we had recruited a a team of people that we could all look at each other and say, this is one of the best, you know, groups of people we've ever, we've ever worked with from both a, you know, integrity perspective, but also a, you know, credential perspective and and impact perspective. So that to me is, is, uh, we created real value for, uh, the company, but also for all the all the coworkers here, and I think that is people strategy, you know, sort of in spades. 
it seems like there's two parts to this conversation. It seems like there's the tactical people strategy of how do we get the right people in the right seats and execute on the business. But it seems like there's sort of an overarching value strategy here too. You know, Lindsay, you've mentioned it several times. How do we make DEI just part of every decision that we make? So what was that process like to make those decisions to say, these are the things we're going to stand for as an employer. And then, you know, how did, how do you build that into the decision-making? I think, and Sam, you can say if you feel differently, I think actually that that sort of real work on accountability, every step of the way on important things like diversity, equity, and inclusion start with the trust between us. Because we have had hard conversations, very hard conversations. And it's not been, Sam, let me give you feedback. Though, of course, there was feedback or vice versa. But more of us, I think, having very candid, real conversations about our own roles and how we have either previously perpetuated inequity without intending to or or reflecting on how we might do different different things in future, reflecting on the privilege that we have and what we do to be of service inside of that as it exists. And that is, so as I said, I've, I've been doing this work as an ex, I would describe it as an extracurricular in my previous life, lives. And that's zero disrespect to the work we, we did in those arenas. It was great work. Um, but the 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 game is being upped, and we are all being asked deeper, harder questions. And so, especially in a year that played out twenty twenty, but even prior to that, the conversations that we had first started with, we know that if we process this as leaders, our team is going to better process it and activate it. So instead of sitting back and admiring the problem, finding a way to activate it and shift accountability, to both claim what we are accountable to, but also say, how are you going to show up to this moment? How are you going to show up to this opportunity we have to think about how we do things differently? And then additionally, I think Sam was super supportive that literally everyone on my team, we aren't a, a big enough size org to have a dedicated DEI leader. And so everyone on my team, there is no one opted out of that journey. It was part of the hiring criteria. Sam was very supportive of that. That was sort of like, the deal. It was going to be a team that really advocated for this work, did the work themselves, and became agents inside the organization to not only shoulder it, but create other activators inside the organization because the work cannot just fall on the people team. It's shallow there. So that's where having an, a CEO that's on his own journey to uncover his own, you know, sort of experience inside of especially tech that has historically been so lopsided from a representation perspective. Super, super helpful. And I guess really made me recognize just how much value there is. If you do take the time to build the trust and like, just keep it totally real. Again, of course there's risk there, but it, it doesn't feel great if you're having death by a thousand paper cuts in shallow interactions instead. And so that was really the true gift of the partnership was take an example of that work. Sam was not saying, talk to Lindsay. And in my experience, that has been what happens. You know, it's like the CEO will say, that's her gig, right? And it's just, it perpetuates the nonsense. And so it was really, really powerful to have Sam, you know, he'd send a weekly email to employees. And even prior to the 2020 tragedies, 
he was reflecting on this stuff so that in 2020, when it happened, it was not, I have all the answers and here's here, I'm going to make you feel better. No, it was, I'm sitting with this too. And so that to not just have the people leader where I've historically seen this emotional labor sit, but the CEO to say, I will shoulder it with you is so powerful and made our employees feel such psychological safety as they too were processing it. That um, I think that is where it starts is really a trust that hopefully exists, but at least you're working to help make it exist by first starting by being totally authentic with where you're coming from. Yeah, so so I, I agree with everything Lindsay said. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll use just a, a different example um, so that everyone, you know, it's not what well, you know. DEI has been in a very important part of our journey, but but I think the same concepts transcend all the all the areas. So, you know, candor and transparency is an important part of 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 the culture that we've built at, at Shoprunner, and uh, you know, Lindsay referenced uh, my weekly email. I uh, sent an email every Sunday night, not always Sunday night, every weekend, I sent, uh, I sent an email to the company. I think I didn't miss any uh, in the four and a half years I was there. So that's a couple hundred emails. What was interesting, and I didn't even realize this at the time um, when I first started doing it, but when you're sending an email every weekend, every week, you have created this channel that you now can't be silent in when things happen. And this actually ended up being a, a de- you know, not a debate, but just a conversation we would have, Lindsay and I would be like, when does something rise to the level that I, you know, I should talk about it? But, you know, I think whether it was commenting on what was happening in the company, what was happening in our communities, I couldn't, because everyone knew there was an email coming, I had to talk about these things. And I think, and, and you know, Lindsay, uh, and I read all the exit interviews and I know Lindsay reads all the exit interviews. I would say like, Sam's weekly email is like comes up time and time and time again, uh, just in terms of what a memorable and and tangible part of our culture that I heard from the CEO every week about what was happening at the company and when relevant, what was happening in the community. And that was a commitment um, that I made and and you know, with a lot of support from Lindsay to maintain that connectivity from you know, the very top of the organization to literally everybody in the company. And by shining that light on the, you know, I don't have an office, but in the corner office, so to speak, like you are basically creating that bond and that trust and that, and that, and you're living the value. Candor was the value, but you you are forcing yourself to be accountable to that every week. And I think that's something that I'm very proud that we did. And I think sort of related to that, that email also was an evolution. Like I remember there would be emails Sam would send me on Sunday and say, Hey, I'm really sorry to bug you again. Boundaries. It's really good. But yeah. Really sorry to bug you. I need you to go. And of course I would look at my email. I'm not implying that I'm like, oh, I'm logged off. But like just establishing like that. Are we good? We're good. Okay, great. These signals are important. So you'd say, take a look at this because I'd say the other big value that I was able to provide that I think other HR leaders are able to provide is taking what is going on in the CEO's head and making it really sing for a diversified employee base because that CEO has one perspective as the guy or or girl in charge, but who knows how that's going to land with a software developer versus a staff accountant versus, you know, your VPs inside the org. And someone so in, really someone be, in Krakow or whatever. Yes, you know. someone, so we have an office in Krakow and, you know, that'd be another aspect. Hey, you're talking about this and 
it's not a very inclusive way to talk about it. Are we not talking about Krakow? Because then just be explicit about that instead of, you know, saying you must do things the American way. We, we also were on this learning journey because we, when we started, certainly didn't have aspirations to be in Krakow, but it was part of an acquisition that we did. And it's been huge success. We love that office and the people there. And, um, and that also was part of it. So it, a lot of the partnership also was how to help Sam's thoughts get out to people most effectively so that, you know, we were leveraging the right channels that people found really valuable. And yeah, we hear feedback all the time that they felt it was a great avenue. And sometimes Sam would get replies back from people that, you know, he hadn't heard from since he first did a one-on-one with them because he committed to doing a one-on-one with everyone in the organization within six months of them starting. And so that those sort of touch points also help just to create alignment across the whole executive team, just to be, keep us all accountable to, to doing what we say we're going to do. And again, that, that, you know, I think that inviting like Lindsay was, you know, an editor, uh, you know, I was like, I'd be like, here's what, here's what I'm thinking, you know, but I, I need your help to, you know, make sure that it's, you know, like any good editor, you know, I was like, Hey, here's the direction I want to go in, but I want your feedback. And there were times Lindsay would just be like, okay, I think this is a totally wrong direction and would steer it you know, it's something that was much more productive. Do you have an example of one of those that you'd be willing to share? Uh, like an actual email or like an anecdote? Well, like an anecdote where you wanted to go one direction and she was able to add value by saying, you know what, I think you missed the mark with that and was able to translate what was in your head into something that made it into the hearts of the employees. And if not, that's okay. I'm sure there, like you said, there were hundreds of emails. I'm sure it's hard to sift through them, but just curious if there was any stories that come to mind. You don't have to go there if you don't want, but I think I encouraged you to own your story more than maybe you have historically. Like I think in general, Sam has a tendency to shine. He wants to shine the light somewhere else. And I think that's a very noble thing. And it's why he's a fantastic leader and people really feel seen and heard with him. But there would be times where I would say, Sam, I want you to actually think about what it did to you. Like, I want you to show people where it hurts for you. And that for Sam is not where he's going to go immediately because it's just not, it's a vulnerability thing. It's like a, no one wants to hear about me sort of thing, which is, you know, well-intentioned, but in some moments people just wanted to know he hurt too. Um, That's like one example where, and he was to his credit, he said, okay. And like, he went away and came back and it was never, it was always like right size, but he really took it seriously. Like, is this my thing to say, or is it the moment to shine a light somewhere else? Um, so that that comes to mind as something I definitely think was not always true, but I think was super, super uh, impactful to employees to know when to actually just hear about how Sam was doing. It's a great example. What were some of the hard conversations that you two had as you were building and do you have any examples of, of how you came together and work through some of those hard decisions? One of the hardest, certainly, that comes to mind was uh, almost a year ago, right after the pandemic happened, started, the impact on our on ShopRunner was long-term good, short-term bad, meaning the, you know, the business impact on e-commerce was great, a big acceleration. You know, in the long run, the, the shift to e-commerce will help shop runners prospects over the long term. But in the short term, there were a lot of headwinds. People weren't buying from a lot of the retailers that were in our network. A lot of the retailers in our network had financial challenges. And so we, within, I don't know, 
a few days, I think by March 24th, basically, you know, we, along with our CFO, who is a big advocate of everything and, and big partner of everything that we've, we've done, you know, came to the conclusion that we were going to need to cut costs meaningfully. And the decision we had to make ultimately was, do we cut 20% of our staff or do we, do we implement a 20% across the board salary reduction? And I think knowing that our employees have like a negative unemployment rate. So if we let them go, it's not, you know, you hear of some of these other cases in hotels, et cetera, where people are furloughed, but there's this presumption they're going to come back. We couldn't pretend that was going to be true because another company would snatch them up immediately. So that's just yeah. an additional later. I, I felt it's important to know. Yeah, yeah, very. And so the question was, what do we do? You know, how do we handle this in the, in the community? And, you know, and this was uh, in, in our, in our sharp Runner community. And I, and I think the other, the other challenge was, you know, at the, at the time in March, I think it was, you know, this is still when people were thinking like, you know, is there going to be a depression, a decade long depression? Like, you know, and so there was also a feeling that while, you know, in, in any kind of good times, you know, there, you know, the negative employment rate is true. There was a question about like, you know, what would it feel like to, you know, throw someone out of, uh, you know, uh, vote someone off the island and, and, you know, it was sort of a question mark what would happen to them. And so we had a lot of really, you know, deep conversations and uh, about what to do. We ultimately ended up doing um, a salary reduction versus, uh, versus uh, any, any riff. And um, we managed to get through everything without laying off anybody and uh, came, came out stronger because of it. But that's probably, not only if you have something else in mind, but that was probably the thing that I think, especially in terms of like, our people strategy where we really had to soul search and it was very not obvious what to do. Did you have different people with very different views on how to approach that problem? I think we had people in fight, flight, or freeze, and a lot of people were frozen. (laughs) So again, it was, the challenge was, how do you say in the absence of not even perfect information, but just any information where do you go? What do you calibrate decisions on when there's not a playbook for this? Like, we don't know what's going to happen. To Sam's credit, I mean, and, and Ozan, the CFO that we are very close partners with um, on this journey, you know, what we knew was we had to act fast, that being decisive was important, that we could not hem and haw again in the quest for perfect information that we knew no matter what happens, we will be strong, stronger for having been decisive. We'll have more optionality if we are decisive. And um, yeah, I think in that case, it was less that there was like, I want this, I want this. And more of like, what are we doing? What is the, what all our projections just went out the window like we don't even know if things can get there in two days because every warehouse is facing. I mean, we were talking about like we'd have like monthly or weekly updates about what DCs were had to shut down because of sickness. And it's like that meant that our SLAs weren't getting hit. What did it mean? And so it was less of any kind of like really like a conflict and more of coaching people, coaching all of calling us to this moment to say, be decisive. And I think in that moment, what we did was we, guided ourselves with our values and said, we've always said we were made human-centered decisions. We led with humanity is what we always said. We lead with humanity. And so in that moment, what was the humane choice is to ensure everyone stayed on insurance, that we 
buckled things down and then said, we're going to bring it back. We did. We were able to bring it back. But for those two or three months, it was really scary. And, you know, in the meantime, all we said was we're, we're going to go with what we know, which is who we are and the values that we say we are about. And what did the employees see and hear from the leadership team during that time? What, what, what was the transparency like? What was the communication like? I think the feedback we got was... Don't say Thanksgiving I mean, over Zoom. That was... No. Oh. Sam kept saying... Sam kept saying, I mean, who knows? Maybe we're going to be doing Thanksgiving over Zoom. And like, as it turns out, that was true. But I was like, don't say things like that. Lindsay, if it's true, you're just sending people into like a dark place. I actually don't know that. So there would be little things where Sam's like trying to make people see the gravity of it, which is a really worthy endeavor. But in the meantime, people are just like freaking out, you know? So anyway, you can go on to like what it looks no, like. No, no, no. was but, but, working very hard to be very transparent. But in some cases, I was like, shut it down. We can't, no, no one deserves that. But, 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 that, but that's, a, that's a great example of both the transparency, the feedback. And, you know, so I would say, I don't know what's going to happen. And I said, you tell me if we're going to do Thanksgiving over Zoom and I'll tell you how our business is doing. And I just, and I would say, because that was literally how I was thinking. I was like, Thanksgiving is the beginning of the shopping season. You tell me if we're, you know, like it was very, I was fully transparent. And Lindsay was like, don't say that. She's like, that's just, I get what you're doing. You're sending the wrong message. You're freaking people out. And so I found other, other language, but like, I think the feedback we got, and Lindsay, you'll probably remember the verbatim is better than me in our pulse survey, but like consistently saying it was shop runners' finest moments was the pandemic and the way the leadership team, and again, myself, least of the group, but the way our leadership team showed up, uh, I'm so proud of, of the humanity, the empathy, um, the vulnerability that we all showed. I, I, I heard of a story even just a couple months ago from somebody who told me that in the, in the core of the, in the deepest days of the pandemic, this guy got an offer from another company that was $91,000 more than what he was making at ShopRunner. And he said, by the time he got the offer, he realized that he couldn't betray the shopper leadership that had that had shown up so well and tried so valiantly to care for him and the colleagues that he owed it to us and to the company to stick it out. And like he didn't tell me at the time. This is something he told me like after I left and and it was like almost brought me to tears, you know, that someone would do that. That in this day when you think of employment as so transactional and like of course I'm going to leave for $91,000, you know, who wouldn't? You know, and a lot of times that's what I say when someone's like, look, I got an offer. I just can't turn down. You say, you're right. You can't turn that down. You got to go. And this is an offer I would have said you can't turn down. And yet he did, I think, because of the way that um, that the team showed up. So, but Lindsay, I, maybe you, you have other stories, but. Lindsay, you said that a lot of the decisions were made with your values, that you knew you needed to act quickly. And so you just fell back on your values and you said, what do we stand for? And, and what does that mean here as far as what we need to do? Were you communicating with your values too? Yes, we were. We we always work it into what we're saying. It's kind of like, um, you know, again, we try to just really activate the things we've built. I think like setting up frameworks and structures are all great, 
But if you're not seeing it alive and breathing inside your people and the ways they collaborate, it's, it's again, more shallow. So we definitely were. I think we took accountability really seriously. I mean, Sam, we all took pay cuts, but we took double the cut. I mean, we and we were very transparent about that. Not to say, give me a pat on the back, but to say, we're not all equal. Like, we're not going to pretend that everyone's at the same level here. And so the sacrifice should be proportionate to where we're at because we want to go first as leaders, right? Like we go first, that that's who we are as leaders. And the accountability piece was we're going to keep reporting because we all, we always too would, would share financial, you know, sort of this, the summary of the financials and that did not change in COVID. And in fact, I think that that helped a lot because it became like the truth about how are we getting back to the track where we can get back to restoring salaries and potentially even talking about growth from there and people would see it. And then additionally, I think not only our values, but sort of our purpose, which is to really help again, to Sam's point, help each retailer be better for having been a part of the collective. You know, it's no secret that the pandemic was great for Amazon and the date, the Goliaths, we're getting even more powerful in this moment of weakness, you know, or this moment of suffering. And so I think in addition to values, we also really hooked into our purpose to say, we give a damn, this matters that this exists. And this is really hard, but we care so much that it exists. Like to think about a world where there's just one option for that retailer to go because Amazon is just you know, taking everyone's lunch and there's an alternate, like we need to remember that there will be another side of this. And we need to know we showed up and fought the good fight for this other model of how retailers can meet the modern day. And so I think it was values, but it also was going back to some work we did around like vision and purpose and reminding people that even though we're like sort of in survival mode, we need to remember that that still is work that matters and that retail is a huge part of the American economy and a huge part about how we're all going to help, you know, come back to whatever the next normal is. And, And that was the message that was being communicated out to employees as well. Yes. It was, it was a message that was communicated back. I think, you know, we were very candid, but one of our values is candor and we certainly were bold. So, you know, we would cite that and say, you know, we know that there's not going to be a perfect plan here and we're just going to keep doing the best we can doing. I would cite frozen to a lot because I have children. And so this idea of doing the next right thing, I would, I would cite it because it's like, that's all we knew what to do is just do the next thing you knew was the right thing. And then eventually you're going to be able to add it up to something that you're really proud of. I I am really proud of how we did it, but it doesn't mean every week it wasn't pretty scary. You know, like we hope it all adds up to something great. And it did. Lindsay, question for you uh, regarding your leadership of the, the HR function. How do you manage the tactical elements while being able to rise above and, and create the strategy? Cause I know that that is a, problem or a struggle for a lot of leaders, especially with lean teams, especially through periods of growth. So I I don't know, you can answer that question in any way you want, but I'd just be curious how you balance those two out in the day-to-day. So I think to start, I have very deep relationships with people on my team, and that includes I've always been very invested in people's learning journey. Um, So if you look at Groupon and Braintree Venmo and then ShopRunner, everyone ended great, which is awesome. But in the moment, you actually, especially as the people leader who we're not building the products, we're not upselling. There's a certain amount of passivity that 
can be inherent in HR because you're thinking, well, put the people in place, but how effective they are is on them. You know, I can help them, give them tools. And I think the the sort of challenge in managing an HR team is that they become complacent in their growth. If the growth of the company stagnates, so does their growth, right? And so what I have always said is, I don't know how this is going to play out. I can't. Pro- I don't actually know what a year, two years is going to look like. What I can promise you is I'm going to give you every opportunity to learn where you want to learn. So in some cases, it was like, you know, giving people, like if they were in the recruiting function, exposure to the HR function, which also would help that uh, director people experience help flex her muscles. And, you know, I think also just starting with like being very honest about where I have strength and where I have opportunities. And that means that I hire to those gaps. I have a great, really strong second in command who has all kinds of superpowers I don't have. And I'm very, I do not put on airs about that. I say, that's where you are super strong. It's where I'm going to look to you. So again, I think setting very clear expectations about what you know and what you don't know and sort of your personal commitment as a leader to that team and the ways that you want them to rise to meet whatever moment comes out, because we really do have to be nimble depending on on how things play out. The team has to look different. Um, So it always starts for me about being very honest about where I am strong and where I have opportunities to learn and saying, and this is what I'm going to lean on you specifically for. And this is where I'm going to come to you for that gut check on something that, you know, maybe I don't have a ton of experience, but you do. So for me, I think it's been more about setting the standard on each of, like I said, office experience, people experience, and then the recruitment. The recruitment is probably the easiest to know whether things are working because you're hiring and you see pipeline metrics. People experience, you're looking at pulse surveys, people ops, payroll benefits, et cetera. And we do try to, we actually create team OKRs so we know what great looks like. I would say I looked back at the ones from 2020 and I just laughed because I was like, oh, that's so... That's so cool that we thought we'd be able to do all that. And instead, the whole hierarchy of needs shifted down several pegs. And so again, what was most important was our team had really strong relationships and could lean on one another. So recruiters turned into taxonomy experts because there wasn't recruiting going on. And that started with me saying to them, I got you. You know, like I'm I need you over here, but I'm gonna bring you back just as soon as it makes sense. So there's no easier solve than to have strong relationships where the communication is open and honest so that you can just level with one another and cite what reality is and say, how are we, how are we going to meet this moment? And I think that's what our team did really beautifully through the whole build, but also especially in the last year as we brought it into you know the next era for ShopRunner. And I love what you say about that it's really easy to stagnate, right? And so how are you pushing the other leaders to, like your your peers, to be evolving the people strategy in the other areas of the business. Oh, interesting. Well, I would say another testament though to this should again should not have surprised me, but I just I came up in in different companies where the CEOs hadn't like Sam had come from Match, he had run a public company, like it was just a different experience and he very early said, "I want to invest in team development." And I thought, oh, that's new. Because usually you people just ask me to figure that out. Like, how are we going to get the team to be high-performing? And I, I'll do a decent job, but that's not my whole... That's not... I don't eat, breathe, sleep that aspect. And so if you bring in someone whose literal job is to up-level the team, not the players, but the team, and we did that in partnership with a great company here in Chicago. And so... 
I was able to help leaders because they had this outside voice as well. So I was the inside voice, helping them, coaching them, telling them what I see specific to the players and the people. And then they had an external coach that was there to to counterbalance it and give that sort of objective perspective as well. So honestly, it was even more effective because it wasn't just me. It was me. And you'd ask anyone on the executive team, they're not going to say I shy away from giving that important feedback. But it's helpful when they when it, they hear it echoed. And so I'd also work with her. But maybe talk a little bit. I think you're selling yourself short. I think we've had at least two execs who were promoted, three execs who that were promoted from the ranks. Um, and I think you were instrumental in, in their executive development. So I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about that. But also, I think there were different executives who were at different points on their own personal journeys of leadership evolution. I think you pushed people appropriately to sort of do what was uncomfortable for them. So I think you should maybe talk, maybe talk a little bit about that because I think you were instrumental in bringing, pushing the team forward on those dimensions. You are right on that. I should not sell myself short. Um, but again, I go back to, at the end of the day, I'm a super curious person. So as I am helping leaders rise to greatness, as I'm calling them to greatness, as we say, I'm actually mostly oriented as much as possible in curiosity. So I don't come in saying, I have all the answers. Well, you're doing it wrong. It's not the way I would do it. Not the way Sam's, Sam's mad, you know, whatever it is. It's more like a, it starts with a strong relationship. And I have good instincts on potential, I think, because I've seen amazing talent come up the ranks in previous companies. And I think I've also helped leaders to account when they believe someone external is going to be better than someone internal. And many times I'll say to them, no, you just know the internal person more than the external. So it's like you just have a false sense of superiority when actually through to invest in this person, it's going to be even better in general for, for lots of reasons. So I think it started with, you know, when, when we do have those moments when leaders are ready to take the next step. I think it's, again, starts with vulnerability, honesty, and that relationship to say, what do you need from me? What can I do to support you? And each of those leaders is going to come in, again, with different superpowers. And then my job is to either say, I will compliment you there, or I'm going to find you help. Because I think the worst thing you can do is, and I've, I've actually experienced this, you push someone off the ledge, and they're just trying, they're just working so hard. And they don't even know how to articulate what they need. And so that's where I would come in to say, well, you know, you can ask for that. Again, to the point of like, ask for what you need. It's like, if we just shortcut to what you need, and and maybe then the function I played was just helping them figure out what that was. And in a lot of cases, if there are people who are kind of spun out with anxiety or fear or whatever, it would be asking very simple questions like, tell me what you're afraid of. Like, And we'd get a little bit like, I'm not a therapist, but many of this is like, the more psychologically sound you are as a leader, the more you're going to be better for your people. The more you've taken that time to process your wants and needs and where you want to go from here and what's keeping you up at night, the more effective you're going to be moving forward because you'll have named the thing instead of being haunted by it. And so a lot of times where I'd come in is just like, talk to me about what you need. And also I'm here to help. I'm not here to stand in judgment. I'm ready to help you. And so I think in those cases, it was offering that, that, that sort of guiding moment of like, I'm going to hold your hand through this. I'm not going to hold it the whole way, but for a while, I'm going to hold your hand and like, we can just keep it real with each other. And I'm here to support as you need. 
I read something recently that talked about leadership as essentially just figuring out what your people need and giving it to them. Yes, I totally agree with that sentiment. Yeah, thank you. Sam, one last question for you, and then we're going to open this up to see if there's any Q&A. What are you looking for from an HR partner? Like, wh- What makes HR most valuable to you? And, and what are the things that the HR listeners on this can take away to maybe up their game and, and be adding more value to the leadership team? You know, like, like I said earlier, I think every every CEO is going to have a different answer, but but mine is clear. In my view, and, and every executive is important, because I'm sure there are other execs that will listen to me and say, wait a minute, I'm important too. I'd say there are a couple people, a couple roles in a company that are critical amplifiers of the CEO's voice. And they tend to be the CFO, who is speaking to investors, the board, and has to be in sync with the CEO. I think it's the head of HR or people who is my megaphone to the team and your executive assistant who is like representing me to so many people every day. And, and, and so those three, um, those three people, I think tend when, when I look and, and so I'll answer your question, you know, specifically on, 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 on HR, I need someone who, who of course is pushing and and we're strategically aligned and is is doing all the things but more than anything you know in the 39 hours a week that Lindsay and I aren't meeting together where she's off doing her job or whatever like i have to know deep down that we're aligned and that she's out you know furthering the mission the vision of our people strategy and so that's the most important thing for me because the people of the team are so often the company's most important asset. I can't try as I might. And Lindsay mentioned, I, I try to do a one-on-one with every person in the company every year. I don't, I don't get there, but I try. I do weekly emails. I do all the things I can to try, but I know I can't as one person get out to every, every person in the company. And Lindsay is that conduit, is that extension. Uh, which is not to say she's not herself and her own person, but she is, you know, amplifying and that that message, uh, and that's what's so important is um, she allows me to, I think, be a be a better leader and to connect and resonate more with with the team. Wonderful, thank you. So that concludes the uh, fireside chat portion today, and we want to open it up for Q and A. Uh, one question that came through. Are there any decisions you made that now with reflection should have been made differently and looking at other information that you did not realize was important then? So any lessons learned about decisions you made that maybe were the wrong decision that you've learned lessons from and and make better decisions now? Let me count. So so, so many. Lindsay, Lindsay and I have a running joke that we're going to write a book. And every time something goes wrong, we're like, that's another chapter of the book. Another so our chapter. book is very long. Honestly, though, that's a very helpful framing if anyone wants to try it, because it makes you feel like at least your failures were productive and someone's going to learn something from it. It like, helps you like zoom out on it to say, like, that'll give me perspective someday, like the fact that we just learned that lesson. If I was going to generalize, uh, because a lot, of the, a lot of things that are coming to mind are are probably too too in the weeds to be useful. 
I would say, you know, it's, it's heartening that Lindsay mentioned like how much effort we put into like the executive team functioning, but try as, as much as we did prioritize it, I think I didn't invest enough in it. I tolerated, we tolerated, uh, I will, just as I said, you shouldn't uh, sell yourself short. I will also tie you to the yoke of accountability. Um, I think we, we tolerated during various parts of our journey. I think we taught, we tolerated some executive team dysfunction uh, too much for too long in, in a few, at a few times that we uh, probably in retrospect, after we, after the situations were resolved, I think we looked at each other, like we should have done that sooner. And could you, without getting yourself in trouble, could you talk about what that dysfunction maybe looked like? And because I think that's a common thing that you hear about, like everybody's got that team member that maybe is behaving in a bad way or or bringing the team down. And it's only when they're gone that you're like, Oh God, we should have done that sooner. So what were those dysfunctions that, that really you, that you found were getting in the way and, and what did you learn once you kind of work through the angst of getting getting rid of them? I think the one of the classic ways it shows up, and I know everyone on this call has seen that this is the meeting after the meeting. The like we met and the purpose of a meeting is to raise the conflict, raise the tension, get it all out, unlock something new from that tension, transcend it, go through it. And instead what we did in the meeting was we played nice. Now what happened is after the meeting, two people go away and they're like, you validate my feelings. I'll validate yours. And now we've actually, like, that's just like not a healthy, it's like, it feels good for a second, but lots of things feel good for a second and are not actually good for you. And so like, this is the same in this case was there should have been more accountability on some of those bad behaviors that frankly, weren't getting to the heart of the matter, which is that's what the meeting's for friends. The meeting is to, to unearth those moments, those places we are not aligned call out where we are aligned. And if we are not aligned, you say, we need more time for this meeting. But the minute it turns into a meeting after the meeting, you have wasted your energy. We've not moved the ball forward. We have not, you know, like it just, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. You felt better for a second, but I think it's those moments of like, you're better than this as a leader. Like I'm better than this. And there were some times where, and I think HR people also can fall in this trap because we care a lot. We want people, I want people to feel better. But it took also some learning on my part to say, listen, time out. This is, you need to be talking to this person directly, not to me. Like, how can I help? How do you want me to show up for you? But I want to acknowledge this is your battle to go fight. And so that, that I think I perpetuated it in some ways in those earlier days because I was still figuring out my orientation. And um, yeah, but that's the way I would see it show up a lot. Here, here's the way I often see it show up. And I think this is true probably both CEOs and heads of HR. The analogy our uh, executive coach uses is um, people try to give you their monkeys. You know, executive A has a problem with executive B, and executive A comes to you and says, "I have a problem with executive B. Can you fix it?" And I think many CEOs and many CHROs, I think, uh, want to be fixers. We like we are in our nature. Like I, I want to go fix things. Like I want to make it better. And so I'll take the monkey, and I'm like, okay, I'll go talk to executive B. And so I would go talk to the executive B. And then, and then you end up with like all the monkeys. And you, by taking the monkey, you also, in some ways, have, by, you, you, you have enabled executive A because now they're like, well, Sam's fixing it. 
I'm just going to sort of sit back and see how Sam and Lindsay do fixing this problem. Glad they have the monkey. And so I am like, you know, it took me a long time to get to the point where I'm like, not my monkey, your monkey, you need to go deal with it. So that's another way, another, another way that it's, uh, that it looks like. Do you have any rules for conflict for how you fight or any frameworks? Like, like the two of us together, the, the team, or the two of you, the team, oh. I mean, like, so we talk about this in, in my work too, that healthy teams have a lot of healthy conflict. And I would just be curious if there were any practices that you put in place in those meetings to get to the root of the conflict faster and work through it in a healthier manner. No, I, I, Lindsay would probably have a better answer. Here, here's what we do. We instituted a check-in uh, that we do at, at every exec meeting where everybody goes around and, and checks in. And uh, there's four questions that everyone checks in with or four statements. And one of them is, what are you losing sleep over? And what I like about that is in the first three minutes of the meeting, everyone is not just at, is everyone is supposed to put out on the table what is the thing that they need resolved or is unresolved for them. And at least that way, like you've had, you've been invited to put your, your issue on the table at the very beginning. So I don't think this exactly answers your question, but I think it at least, it's not a rule for fighting, but it's at least a, um, an invitation to bring the tension out literally at the outset. But Lindsay sounds, looks like you have. Well, I was going to say though, it's related to doing the work before you get to that point. It's like, I, I, I personally am not a fan of workplaces as families, but because I think you can't fire your family. But I will say that in the same ways that you never fight more authentically than with your spouse or your partner, where you are 100% real, right? Like, you know what you're working with, you know, the baggage, you know, the like places they're great, places they're not great, and they know yours, right? In the same way, the work we did to align on a team as a team, again, not as players, but as the team, to really say, here's who we are and be more conscious about it. And I think it became more about being able to flag when we were coming from a place of, we'd co- there's a great uh, video um, from conscious leadership about being above the line or below the line. So above the line, we're creative. We believe everyone's capable of solving their own problems. We have a sense of play. We believe anything's possible. But below the line, we're in our lizard brain and we're like, fight, fight, freeze. Everyone's out to get me. We're so not creative in this place. And so we really talked about that concept to the point where even in Slack, we have above the line and below the line emojis so that people can just say, listen, I'm below the line right now. Anything I say is going to be not great. So I need to go take a minute or like just acknowledge I'm below the line. Then I'm going to say something and I'm going to say, yeah, that wasn't a very conscious thing to say to me. Like you're treating me as if I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm not an idiot. We both want the same things. So I think it was less about like the rules of fight club and more like the sort of like awareness that we're all doing our best. We're all human beings who are going to get tripped up with the same intrinsic wiring and the ways we're wired are going to be different. We're not all going to re- you know respond in the same ways. But the fact that we could just be, it was really, again, it's th- this is like the hard work of vulnerability and connectedness that then when you're in duress pays off tenfold 
And the other sort of like reflection I was doing even on the last year is I recognize that in my my career to date, I've seen culture when business has been thriving. And the culture at ShopRunner was a great example of when culture can hold you up because the business is not necessarily thriving and you're still going to find a way through. So I think in the same way, we committed to one another as an executive team to just come totally holy and say like, this is where I'm at today. So to the point of like the check-in, it would start with just not withholding from one another, being really open and honest about how we were approaching whatever conversation we were coming with so that at least it was true, whatever was happening for each of us. Thank you. And Sam, I got a question. What were the other three questions that you start your executive team meetings with? We would invite everyone to share a team win. So something from their team that they um, happened over the, the last week, a personal win. Uh, so something in your personal life that, uh, that happened, something you're losing sleep over. And the fourth is... Gratitude to someone on the team. The most important one. And you cannot uh, pick the whole team. I'd like, oh, you cannot do, I'd like to thank the Academy. You have oh, to actually pick worst. one person. Like that's the rule. And the funniest thing is when you bring new people onto the team, invariably the first week, I want to thank everyone for welcoming me. And then the second week, and I you say, everyone. I'll let you get away with that right now. But literally, yeah. after and, and, week, I, and I tell them, I'm like, all right, all right. Your first week is fine. Then the second week, they try to get away with it again. And I'm like, literally your last one. But just having to say, Lindsay, thank you for, you know, looking at that email on a Sunday night, it really made it better. And I appreciate it. Like it just like, so, I don't know, so great. I have a friend who runs a business and they do gratitude every Monday morning with their whole team. And they, he commented that they do the same thing. The newbies always start with the broadest thing. I'm happy that the sun is shining today. Yeah. And eventually it gets very narrow down to like, some specific thing that their kid said to them, you know, and, and that they can see that as that narrows down and they get more specific with their gratitude, that they actually feel it more. And so it actually has a more positive impact on the person too. Question for Lindsay related to DEI. So let's say that you have a team that's committed to DEI. You have managers that are committed to it, that they buy in, but they keep hiring people that look like themselves. How, how do you help those people start to see what their what their actions are and how their actions are different than the values that they're espousing and start to make that change? So for me and for us, we took the strategy of just hold up the mirror consistently. So annually, we would say, here's what we look like. Here's everyone. Here's the pie chart. Everyone in leadership roles. Here's what leadership roles means to us. Here's the rest of the broad population. As a comparison, here's how big tech is looking. Also abysmal, but let's see how we compare to that, right? And then let's look at the population. Just as I don't, I don't know that it should be totally reflective of the local geography. I think people take different viewpoints on that, but it starts with just reflecting back the truth. Again, like aspirations are great, but how are we really going to move the needle? And if after several data points, all the data looks the same, you have to ask yourself, like, what can we do differently to inject new or new um, sources of talent or new talent strategies? Is it something where, you know, the constraints on our business are such that 
We just simply need to start sooner. We need to we need to be a part of the pipeline nurturing. We need to look at who we have inside this organization. The other piece that we did that I was really proud of is when we would do promotion reviews, when we would say who's up for promotion, and we would as an executive team align on it before we'd even talk about the cases and give our blood, you know, our thumbs up, thumbs down, or like, you know, have our discussion, it would start with the pie chart. Here's what the org looks like. Here's the people you're putting up for promotion. Because I think even more, even more than the recruitment we can be doing in our communities, which yes, is another part of it. You need to also be very mindful of who do you have inside your organization you're going to lose because they could go somewhere else to a place that values them in a way you do not. So for me, it's been less of like, and we have the same challenges many companies have. I'm not I'm not saying that I'm any kind of expert on this, but I've tried very much, again, in the spirit of believing that we all have a part in this, we have to create the future because no one's nailing it right now, right? Like it's, there's not someone who's doing this so well that we just need to copy it. I've always started with, I need to start by making you conscious of what it is and like how you're showing up because one hire every six months starts to add up. If you're hiring in rapid succession, it's much easier for that leader to be conscious of it. But in normal course of business that isn't in hyper growth mode, those hires come few and far between. And so in the meantime, to offer that lens of like, here's what your team looks like, here's what we look like, again, just to create more consciousness so we can get creative about how we're going to source talent, nurture talent. That's been the ways I've found really successful because again, it takes the onus off of me entirely and says, I want your buy-in on this. This is how you can show up to this work tactically. Question for both of you. you. You've both talked a lot about trust on the executive team, the trust you have for each other and how you built that trust. What happens if the trust gets compromised? How, how do you build back trust? How do you communicate the trust has been compromised? What, what happens in that scenario? Do you just fire them? I think what I'll say is anyone who knows Sam and I for any bit, I think can tell pretty quickly that we care a lot and that we have very deep loyalty. And to the point of some of the decisions we made through the pandemic, but just decisions we've made in general, what I have been told about myself is I never have to do the stern talking to. All I have to say is I'm disappointed, I'm hurt. And that hurts like a thousand times more than any other like more nuanced strategy. So in those cases, I've been honest. And I think my journey there, and again, I think for many HR leaders who again want to fix, want to make people feel better, is asserting that truth for yourself and not apologizing for it. You've disappointed me. I believe you're better than this. And then leaving it. Like letting the person sit in the discomfort of the decisions they've made that have betrayed the trust. Because again, you talk about the drama triangle. You want to rescue the person from that discomfort. You want to say, I'm going to make it feel better. But instead it's like, no, my feelings are valid. You have betrayed my trust. And that's what you need to know. And we'll talk tomorrow. So that's my perspective on it. I don't, I also don't see Sam as a heavy hand, but maybe he'll tell me differently. I think Lindsay said it well. I'll leave it at that. I, I have read in a couple of places the, that your ability to lead others directly correlates to your willingness for them to be uncomfortable. And I think we, we often aren't willing to sit and just put the period on the sentence and walk away. You know, we, we want to make sure that everybody feels good at the end, but often our biggest growth comes through discomfort 
through sitting and processing that discomfort and being like, man, I never want to feel like this again. One of the things I like about Zoom is the ability to actually hit mute because, because I, 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 I sometimes will do that. I'll be like, oh, and I'll just like hit mute and be like, all right, I can't talk. So you have to sit in the, you have to sit in the silence. That's, Our that's room. how somebody knows they, they really got in trouble when you, yeah, just mute, exactly. you just mute and exactly. won't reply. Exactly. I've definitely done that. I, 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 I can actually remember a few very, a uh, couple tough conversations I had, um, last year. They happened to be both on the phone where, uh, I literally just hit, I was like, I was like shaking and I like just hit mute. And then I actually said words to myself just to like get it out. But I was like, I'm mute. So I was like, okay, it's all fine. That's a, that's a good good tactic. Well, we are uh, about at the end of time here, and I just can't thank the two of you enough for coming on and sharing your story and, and all of your wisdom and expertise. This has been uh, awesome and, and enlightening. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.